This is the word of the Lord. All right. I got to do a little test up front here because our first service, I thought was the chill, relaxed service. They turned out to be the Pentecost. I mean, it was awesome. So I'm just curious how you guys are doing today. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. Ooh. You know, I don't know. We'll see. Thank you, Beth Ann. True cheerleader back there in spirit. All right. So my hope is that you, you guys will feel the freedom to be at your volume or your space. Uh, and if that means quiet, reserved, and introvert, that's cool too. Uh, so we embrace it all. We are in Lent, overcome the world, resist the devil, fight the flesh. That's what we're calling this series, uh, and we have some reasons for that. But first, I want to address maybe the question that emerges, why Lent? Why does Axiom continue to persist in doing Lent? Like, for some of you, you go, well, that's like a Catholic thing, you know, or that's like uh, something else, but it's not us. Well, here's the deal. Lent is a Jesus thing. Lent is a Jesus thing. What we see in the scriptures is that Jesus goes into the wilderness. He refuses to participate in things so that he might experience preparedness for what God's called him. And so the early church was really wise and thoughtful to say, we want to shape ourselves around the practice and way of Jesus just as he did. And the truth is, we need seasons, not just moments, to be transformed. We love moments. We love to experience God in the high tops and all those kind of ways. But the reality is, we need seasons. We need crockpot Christianity if we're going to be transformed. For real, no more microwave. Let's give ourselves to it. So I hope that you feel permission over the next 40 days to surrender to love, to choose in spaces in your life to intentionally give things up in exchange for the greater thing. And in doing so, might you be transformed. What we read in the scriptures is just before Jesus goes into the wilderness in the desert, we first see this about his baptism in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. This is what it says. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and landing on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Immediately following this affirmation, this calling of Jesus, naming him the Beloved and telling him this, immediately after this, we read this, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I can't think of a more terrifying passage in all of Scripture than this. What is the Spirit doing to lead the Son of God into the desert to be tempted by the devil? And yet, here it is. Forty days through prayer and fasting, Jesus prepares himself for the mission that God has given him. But we also need to understand that these seasons of of wilderness are war with the devil. That Jesus is waging war here with the Satan. And the Satan shows up. 
Satan shows up. This intentional move to discipline oneself, to be wholly devoted to God, even when you don't have all the things you've attached, to say yes to God, even in the spaces where you don't have the things you normally lean on. You don't have the devices or the or, or, or the excuses, or the, the resources. You just have what you and God have together, and that's enough. That's the kind of season that formation brings. Jesus needed this to overcome the world, to resist the devil, and to fight the flesh. And the truth is, we need this too. You need solitude. You need the desert. You need to be in spaces where you are appropriately challenged, where pruning takes place, where dependencies are eliminated, so that you might regularly become the kind of person who naturally leans on God. We need this. This is what Lent is for. So it's my prayer that you guys will go into this with me, that you'll choose, not because of circumstance, but out of your own volition, to allow yourself the, to, to embrace that less might be more. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, I want to ask a question because I'm just curious. As Wesley read this passage, Jesus was tempted with some things. And so I want to ask you guys, if you had the chance to feed everybody that was hungry in our world today, if you had the chance to prove to everybody that God was real, and you had the opportunity to liberate all the oppressed people, would you do it? Yeah. Like, that's a good idea. Everything in me says, yes, I would do that. I likely would do that because they're all good things. But that's just it. The devil came to tempt Jesus in the same way that he tempts us with good ideas. That's where the devil disguises himself, hides himself. He places himself in spaces where our good ideas become king, not the king itself where we can participate in all these good things. And, and again, they're good things. But at what cost? What is being compromised in the name of that good thing? And this is the way that the devil comes to Jesus. The devil here essentially invites Jesus to carry out the second commandment. He says, hey, if, if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, if you're going to take care of the poor, if you're going to liberate people, if you're going to feed them, right? Like, you would do that. That's, that's, God commands us to do that. But the truth is, as followers of Jesus, we can't say yes to the second commandment while disregarding the first commandment. And that's what this text reveals to us, that we have a devotion to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul. And it's out of that reservoir that we step into good ideas. We don't put the cart before the horse. We don't justify the means by the end. Not for us. And certainly not for Jesus. 
For Jesus to give in to these good idea temptations, to him, he actually calls it Satan worship. That's what he calls it at the end of the text. He says, sorry, I won't worship you, Satan, by, by being the power of the world and by liberating everybody, by doing these things. No, because I worship God alone. Is it, like, that thought just boggles my mind. That we might look into our world and see things that are taking place in the name of you name it. And yet, what is the spirit behind it? What is the motive and the allegiance lie? This is why we need seasons, not just moments, to be transformed. Jesus knew, as we must know, that our social, which was the first temptation, our religious, which was the second temptation, and our political agendas cannot be greater than our love and devotion to God. That must be first. Or those good things become poisonous things. When confronted with the social agenda, Jesus just says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that, God com that comes from God's mouth. See, what he's saying here is that first we partake in God, then we partake in blessing others. That that must come first. When confronted with the religious agenda, he says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And in this last political spirit, he says, Away from me, Satan. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We must see this. What are those spaces in our own life where we continue to live in service to potentially good things? but they are in a, a becoming a shrine to some other thing. Maybe it's your calendar. Maybe it's the kind of person you want to be. What is that thing that we've created to justify the things that we're doing? And is that thing God or something else? Is it possible that you need the wilderness to see it? That you need to enter into the space of overcoming the world, resisting the devil, and fighting the flesh in order to know what's good for you? But what we also must see here was this is not just an issue of whether or not we, Jesus was putting God first. And it's not just an issue of whether or not we are appropriately devoted to God first. It's more than that, because if we make that the thing by itself, we will be very tempted to fall into other unhealthy narratives. Like, I'm never good enough. I couldn't do it. I've tried. I did Lent last year. It didn't work. I put him first, and yet, here I am. 
that narrative by itself is insufficient. It's not just our love for God and putting Him first that's being tested. It's also God's love for us that we have to wrestle with whether or not we affirm it. You see, and here's what I mean. In this passage that, we ju- that Wesley just read, over and over again, what Jesus is questioned by the devil is not just a temptation for political power or religious elitism or social uh, wellness. It wasn't those things alone. What was being questioned, he kept, the devil kept saying to Jesus, if you are truly the Son of God, again, if you are truly God's beloved, the devil rips at his identity, attacks him at not just his devotion to God, but do you really believe yourself that God loves you? That is what we must bring in to agreement. You are God's beloved. Do you believe that? It's out of that source. It's out of that acknowledgement and understanding deep in your bones that you begin to have the capacity to overcome the world, resist the devil, and fight the flesh. It's, interestingly enough, it's not even just that you are beloved. It's that you are beloved even in the wilderness even in the desert spaces. In your weakness, you are God's beloved. In your depravities, you are God's beloved. In your shortcomings and bitter ends, in your isolation and depression, in all those spaces that we sink into, you are God's beloved there too. And this is why, by the way, Jesus enters into the wilderness so that he might find you there also, and you might find him. You see, it turns out in the narrative of Scripture, just as it does in your own stories, that you found your salvation most likely in the wilderness. It was in the space of unbecoming that you found your belovedness. It was in the space of being spent and burnt and hurt or whatever it is that you too found God. In that space where the text tells us that the wild beasts roam, in that space where the enemy lurks, where we are in crisis, in question, where the demands of life are too much, God is there too. We just read about it. This is why Jesus starts his ministry in the wilderness. Because it's the wilderness that he finds us. 
And it's in the wilderness that we find Him. When you look at the Scriptures, if you think about all the stories, where did God continue to emerge to people in the raven, in the desert, the small cloud, a rock, a pillar of fire, a burning bush, through a widow? It's in the wilderness wanderings of our life that God shows up. Even Jesus in this story what begins with being led into the Spirit, led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil, ends, if you'll see it again here in chapter 4, then the devil left him, and angels came and attended to him. Whether you are watching online or here in the seats today, I want to invite you to let God attend to your wilderness. To allow God's messengers to bless you. To allow you to receive in communion God's affection. Would you be re reminded of your belovedness? There's a mirror in the back that says beloved on it. Maybe on your way to communion, you could go spend some time there. There's another mirror that reminds you that you are God's child, and there's nowhere you've gone that Jesus wasn't willing to go to, to be your Savior. There's a station on each side of the room here. There's the juice and the bread. And I want to invite you that as you're ready to come take the elements to participate in the taking in of God's belovedness, that He gave Himself for you. There's an image that's going to come on the screen, an old painting by Thomas Cole, some quotes by Gregory the Great, and another. That I, my hope is that it'll just serve you in this time. There's, take as much time as you need. Place yourself in Jesus' shoes at the end of waging war with the devil just being ministered to and as you're ready come take the elements i'm going to place myself back there with george if you